And welcome to the Deep Dive Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Nick Espinoza, and we're going to be talking about all things cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and technology related. And I think we're one of the only ones out there that's doing that right now. If you'd like to be part of the radio show in any way, shape, or form, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send us an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. We have an action-packed show as always. There's always a lot to cover, so stick around with us as we deep dive into a topic and we catch up on everything else. So without further ado, let's begin. And in future crime news, Minority Report may actually be coming to fruition Kinda. Now, if you haven't seen Minority Report, this is a movie from, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, starring Tom Cruise that basically was about three psychics that could predict crime ahead of time. Meaning, if I was going to wake up one morning and kill my neighbor, I would be arrested before that act because the psychic said that, well, Nick's going to wake up and go kill his neighbor. Not that I, I like my neighbors are cool, but, you know. So, there you go. And obviously, the whole premise of that is, well, can you really predict crime? What if my intent changed, uh, you know, and they didn't see it? You know, there you go. So, Minority Report that's what we're talking about but not quite so here's what's coming on this is coming from the washington post and as the united states faces rising rates of violent crime another research project is now emerging a group of university of chicago scientists unveiled an algorithm last month boasting in a news release of its ability to predict crime with quote 90 percent Accuracy. Now, the algorithm identifies locations in major cities that it calculates have a high likelihood of crimes, including homicides and burglaries, occurring within the next week, within seven days. The software can also evaluate how policing across various neighborhoods in eight major cities that they're testing this in in the United States, including Chicago, L.A., and Philadelphia. Uh, this can determine those things. But using artificial intelligence to direct law enforcement is obviously ringing alarm bells for many social justice scholars and criminologists who cite a long history of such technology unfairly suggesting uh, that increased policing of black and Latino people are needed, meaning there's bias inherent in the artificial intelligence in the past. Now, even one of the study's authors acknowledges that the algorithm's ability to predict crime is limited. Now, Ashanhu Chattopadhyay, um, he is a professor from the University of Chicago and the lead researcher of this algorithm, said, and I quote, The past does not tell you anything about the future. The question is, to what degree does the past actually influence the future? And to what degree are the events spontaneous or truly random? Our ability to predict is limited by that. Meaning, this isn't going to be perfect, but they think they've got it to 90%. Now, over the last 15 years or so, the country's largest police departments, such as New York, L.A., Chicago, etc., have started thinking about ways of using artificial intelligence not just to analyze crime, but to also predict it. They often turn to data analytics companies such as PredPol or Palantir, which create software that law enforcement can use to forecast crime. Predictive policing tools are built by feeding data, such as crime reports, arrest records, license plate images, etc., to an algorithm which is then trained to look for patterns to predict where and when a certain type of crime will occur in the future. But the algorithms are only as good as the data they are fed, which is the problem particularly for people in the United States. This is according to Vincent Sutherland. He is the co 
faculty director of the New York University's Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law. Now, historically, police data in the United States is biased, according to Sutherland. Cops are more likely to arrest or charge someone with a crime in low-income neighborhoods dominated by people of color. That's a reality that doesn't necessarily reflect where crime is happening, but where crimes are spent, or where, but where the police are spending their time. That means most data sets of criminal activity overrepresent people of color and low-income neighborhoods. Feeding that data into an algorithm leads it to suggest more criminal activity is in those areas, creating a type of feedback loop that is racially and socioeconomically biased, according to Sutherland. Quote, you have data that is infected by or tainted by some bias, and that bias is going to appear on the other side of the analysis. You get out of it what you put into it. And in that sense, he's absolutely true. But this team in the at the University of Chicago basically said that they know that a lot of these past algorithms have a troubling past. And so in making this algorithm, this team segmented major cities into 100 square foot city blocks and oh, excuse me, 1000 square foot city blocks and then use city crime data from the last 3 to 5 years to train it. The algorithm then spits out whether there is high or low risk of crime happening in that segment at a certain time up to 1 week in the future. And to limit bias, the team omitted crime data such as marijuana arrests, traffic stops or low level petty crimes because research shows that black and latino people are more often targeted for those types of offenses. Instead, they gave the algorithm data on homicides, assaults, and batteries, along with property crimes like burglaries and motor vehicle thefts. But the main point of the study, they said, was to use the algorithm to interrogate how the police are biased. His team compared arrest data from neighborhoods of varying socioeconomic levels. They found crime happen in wealthier uh, that excuse me, they found that crime that happened in wealthier areas led to more arrests, where in poorer neighborhoods, crime didn't always have the same effect, which therefore shows a discrepancy in enforcement. I think that's a really interesting observation. They also said that these results help provide evidence to people who complain that law enforcement ignores poorer neighborhoods when there's a spike in violent or property crime. Quote, this allows you to quantify for that to show the evidence. So, I think it's actually kind of important right now to mention intent on this one. I talked about artificial intelligence actually in my third TED Talk, and typically the intent of the creator is not to create something that's racist or even biased, but bias can naturally creep in. For example, look at facial recognition technology. There is a heavy false positive rate among minority populations, up to 35% at times, primarily because those who helped develop the AI were mostly white and therefore they were testing and training the AI on white people, right? So if you if the AI has never seen a black person, there's going to be more false positives. It's got to learn every type of face, every type of complexion, color, you name it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to be as accurate as possible. And that's not intentional on the developers. You know, that's really not. I don't think they they went out to set up a racist facial recognition system. They just used what they had at hand, and here we are. I think the goal should be then to learn from that, that mistake and be more inclusive in their development. That was the point that I made in that talk. So I think that AI in policing is interesting, but also to the point here, a very concerning prospect when these products are used and they're not fully matured or still have some unintended inherent bias. That actually was a recent case where... 
a black guy, I want to say it was in Oakland, San Francisco or Oakland, and West Coast, essentially was in jail for a year because he, the AI-based facial recognition system gave him a false positive, said that, yes, he actually was the suspect in the picture when he wasn't. And it took the police and investigators a year, literally a year, to figure out that this guy was not actually the perpetrator of this particular crime. And then they released him. That's what we're talking about. So going off and having artificial intelligence that is not, I, you know, is 90% accurate sounds great, but that 10% are the potential 10% that could be falsely arrested or imprisoned. I don't want to, you know, act, you know, look like a perpetrator and then the, the artificial intelligence mistakes that guy for me and now I'm being arrested for a crime I didn't commit. I mean, that's essentially what we're potentially talking about here. So I think if we're going to use AI, it has to be bulletproof. It has to be as accurate as humanly possible. And while 97 is a pretty amazing step compared to the other ones, we're nowhere near ready for this. But nevertheless, police are going to keep on moving forward. And that's, I think, the unfortunate reality of the situation. So that is your Minority Report news of the week. And in ride-sharing news, we have to talk about Uber because Uber is a horrible, horrible company. Now, here's what's going on. This is coming from a great report uh, from The Guardian by Harry Davies, uh, Simon Goodley, Felicity Lawrence, Paul Lewis, and Lisa O'Carroll. And I'm going to quote just directly right out of the gate their article. A leaked trove of confidential files has revealed the inside story of how the tech giant Uber flouted laws, duped police, exploited violence against drivers, and secretly lobbied governments during its aggressive global expansion. End quote. That is what we are talking about today. Now, I have to say right out of the gate, because I don't want to get sued, Uber is under new management since this era, but I think I think they have a lot to explain here as well, and we will go through that. Now, this unprecedented leak of more than 124,000 documents, which The Guardian is calling the Uber files, lays bare the ethically questionable practices that fuel the company's transformation into one of Silicon Valley's most famous and hottest exports around the globe. The Guardian leaked, or I'm sorry, excuse me, The Guardian led a global investigation into the leaked Uber files, sharing the data with media organizations around the world via the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ. More than 180 journalists at 40 media outlets, including Le Monde in France, the Washington Post here in the United States and the BBC in the UK will be or have been publishing in the last couple of days a series on this investigative reports, meaning they're all taking a piece of this and they're all dumping it out to the world. The leak spans a five-year period when Uber was run by its co-founder, Travis Kalanick, who tried to force the cab-hailing service into cities around the world even if that meant breaching laws and taxi regulations. The files also cover Uber's operations across 40 countries during a period in which the company became a global behemoth, bulldozing its cab-hailing service into many of the cities in which it still operates today. During the fierce global backlash, the data shows how Uber tried to shore up support by discreetly courting prime ministers, presidents, billionaires, oligarchs, and media barons. It's just absolutely insane. Now, leaked messages suggest that Uber executives were also at the time under no illusions about the company's lawbreaking, which one, with one executive joking that they had become quote-unquote pirates and another conceding, quote, we're just effing illegal. Now, 
basically about a week ago, Monday or so, as you're listening to this, Mark McGann, Uber's former chief lobbyist for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, came forward to identify himself as the source of the leaked data. Quote, it is my duty to speak up and help governments and parliamentarians right some fundamental wrongs. Morally, I had no choice in the matter. Now, the case of files, which spans uh, 2013 through 2017, includes more than 83,000 emails, iMessages, and WhatsApp messages, including often frank and unvarnished communications between founder Kalanick and his top team. In one exchange, Kalanick dismisses concerns from other executives that sending Uber drivers to a protest in France put them at risk of violence from angry opponents in the taxi industry. Quote, I think it's worth it. Violence guarantees success. Now, in a statement, Kalanick's spokesperson said that he, quote, never suggested that Uber should take advantage of violence at the expense of driver safety, end quote. And any suggestion that he was involved in such activity would be completely false. That is his response. But the leaked email also contains text between Kalamick and Emmanuel Macron, that is the current president of France, who secretly helped the company in France when he was the econ- e- uh, economy minister. He wasn't president then, he was the economy minister, allowing Uber frequent and direct access to him and his staff. Now, Macron, as I mentioned, who is the current French president, appears to have gone to extraordinary lengths to help Uber, even telling the company that he had brokered a secret quote-unquote deal with its opponents in the French cabinet. Privately, Uber executives expressed barely disguised disdain for other elected officials who were less receptive to the company's business model. After the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, who was the mayor at Hamburg of Hamburg at the time, pushed back against Uber lobbyists and insisted on paying the drivers a minimum wage, an executive told colleagues he was, quote, a real comedian, end quote. When uh, when the then U.S. vice president, now president Joe Biden, he was a supporter of Uber at the time, was late to a meeting with the company at the World Economic Forest, uh, Forum in Davos, Kalanick texted a colleague, quote, I've had my people let him know that every minute late he is, is one minute less he will have with me. I mean, what a jerk. It's the vice president of the United States, and that's the attitude you're taking. Oh, if he's five minutes late, he gets five minutes less with me. Dude, screw you. Anyway, I am not a fan of Uber for the record. Full disclosure, full disclosure, I will tell you about my story later on. Now, after meeting Kalanick, uh, then VP Biden appears to have amended his prepared speech at Davos to refer to a CEO whose company would give millions of workers, quote, freedom to work as many hours as they wish, manage their own lives as they wish. Now, in a statement responding to the leak, Uber admitted to, quote unquote, mistakes and missteps, but said that it had transformed since 2017 under the leadership of its new CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi. And I'm Probably butchering that, Dara, I apologize. Now, Kalanick's spokesperson said Uber's expansion initiatives, quote, were led by over 100 leaders in dozens of countries around the world and at all times under the direct oversight with the full approval of Uber's robust legal policy and compliance groups. Now, from Moscow to Johannesburg, bankrolled uh, basically with unprecedented venture capital funding. They got so much money. Uber heavily subsidized journeys, uh, basically seducing drivers and passengers on the app with incentives and pricing models 
that were essentially not sustainable. Uber undercut established taxi and cab markets and put pressure on governments to rewrite laws to help pave the way for an app-based gig economy of work that has since proliferated across the world. Basically, they essentially started the gig economy. Now, in a bid to quell the fierce backlash against the company and win changes to taxi and labor laws, Uber planned to spend an extraordinary $90 million in 2016 on lobbying and public relations, according to one document. Its strategy often involved going over the heads of city mayors and transport authorities and straight to the seat of power. In addition uh, to meeting then-Vice President Biden at Davos, Uber executives also met face-to-face with Macron, the uh, the Irish Prime Minister Enda Kenny, the Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and George Osborne, the UK's Chancellor at the time. A note uh, from the meeting portrayed Osborne as a quote-unquote strong advocate. Now, in a statement, Osborne said that it was the explicit policy of the government at the time to meet with global tech firms and, quote, persuade them to invest in Britain and create jobs here, end quote. While the Davos sit-down with Osborne was declared, the data reveals that six UK Tory cabinet ministers had meetings with Uber that were not disclosed. It is unclear if these meetings should have been declared, exposing confusion around how UK lobbying rules were applied in this situation. The document also indicates that, that Uber was adept at finding unofficial routes to power, applying influence through friends or intermediaries or seeking out encounters with politicians uh, you know at which aides and officials were not present and a list of the backings of powerful figures in places such as Russia, Italy, and Germany by offering them prized financial stakes in the startup and turning them into quote-unquote strategic investors. This is essentially, and it just goes on and on and on, you know, about lobbyists, bullying, all these kinds of things. This is a huge thing. During taxi strikes, uh, they basically, taxi strikes and riots in Paris, Kalanick ordered French executives to retaliate by encouraging Uber drivers to stage counter-protests, even knowing that there was going to be a huge problem. I will quote the article directly here. Warning warning that doing so risked putting Uber drivers at risk of attacks from quote-unquote extreme right thugs who had infiltrated the taxi protest and were quote-unquote spoiling for a fight, Kalanick appeared to urge his team to press ahead regardless. Quote, I think it's worth it. Violence guarantees success and these guys must be resisted. No. Agreed uh, that right place and time must be thought out. In other words, he was totally, totally fine with violence. So, Uber needs to go away. They're a hot mess. I know that they have a new um, CEO. Nevertheless, how many people from that culture are still there, still pervasive? Huge problem. I think they need to go. And so that is your horrible Uber news of the week. And in Wikipedia news, this is why Wikipedia can't be a primary reference or a resource for you if you're doing any kind of research or homework. This is insane. This is amazing. But this is absolutely insane. And so don't get me wrong here. I actually like Wikipedia. If I want some minor or innocuous information, you know, I, I think we all hit it up from time to time in that that which way. You know, so if I'm like, oh, you know, what is the general population of country X? I'll go to Wikipedia. Usually it's right. So we all like it. I also love the concept of what they're trying to achieve. The problem is not everybody who contributes to Wikipedia actually contributes in good faith. And here we are. And so this news is actually coming from Vice News. And it's rather interesting and eye-opening, especially if you use Wikipedia regularly. Now, posing as a scholar, a Chinese woman spent years writing, and I mean years, writing alternative accounts 
of medieval Russian history on Chinese Wikipedia, conjuring imaginary states, battles, and aristocrats in one of the largest hoaxes on the open source platform. Now, if you didn't know, Wikipedia comes in many different languages. So if you're living in China, you can go to Chinese Wikipedia. It's the same format, same standard, obviously, uh, you know, as the United States one or the English one, as it, as it would be in France or German or, you know, take your pick. So understand that this woman is in China writing for Chinese Wikipedia, and this is fascinating. Now, this scam was exposed last month by Chinese novelist Yin Fan, who was researching for a book when he became upon an article on the Kashin Silver Mine. Now, according to the Wikipedia article, uh, discovered by Russian peasants in 1344, the mine engaged more than 40,000 slaves and freed men, providing a remarkable source of wealth for the Russian principality of Tiver in the 14th and 15th centuries, as well as subsequent regimes. The geological composition of the soil, the structure of the mine, and even the refining process were all flushed out in detail in this Wikipedia article. Yin Fan thought that he had found an interesting uh, you know, bit of material for his novel, but little did he know he had stumbled upon an entire fictitious world created by a user simply known as Shi Mao. Now, it was one of 206 articles that she had written on Chinese Wikipedia since 2019, although it goes farther than back, weaving facts into fiction in an elaborate scheme that went uncaught for years and tested the limits of Wikipedia's platform's ability to verify information and fend off bad actors. Now, according to veteran Chinese Wikipedian John Yip, quote, the content she wrote is of high quality and the entries were interconnected, creating a system that can exist on its own. She Mao single-handedly invented a new way to undermine Wikipedia. Now, Yin Fan was tipped off when he ran the Silvermine story by Russian speakers and fact-checked Ji Mao's references, only to find that the pages or versions of the books that she cited simply did not exist. She made them up. People he consulted also called her out on her lengthy entries on ancient conflicts between Slavic states, which could not be found in any Russian historical records. Yin Fan wrote, quote, They were so rich in details, they put English and Russian Wikipedia to shame. Now, the scale of the scam came to light after a group of volunteer editors and other Wikipedians, such as Yip, combed through the past contribution of almost 300 articles. One of her longest articles was almost the length of the novel The Great Gatsby. With the formal authoritative tone of an encyclopedia, it detailed three Tartar uprisings in the 17th century that left a lasting impact on Russia, complete with a map that Shi Mao had actually made. In another entry, she shared rare images of ancient coins, which she claimed to have obtained from a Russian archaeological team. One article she tampered with heavily uh, basically was on the deportation of Chinese in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. It was so well written, it was actually selected as a featured article and translated into other languages, including English, Arabic, and Russian, obviously spreading the damage to other language editions of Wikipedia. I could have read that and thought, oh my gosh, like this is really interesting history. I, I like history, and it would have been completely fake. Now, among the first users to interact, I mean, it's just, it's so how deep this goes. Among the first users to interact with her, Yip almost couldn't believe himself when he learned how she had tricked the system. 
Editors normally presume that writers are contributing in good faith. Yet Ye Uchiha, he is a volunteer editor who plays the role of a patroller and rollbacker who had helped contain the fallout, um, was basically stating this, quote, when surveying new content, we only check whether it's blatant plagiarism and if it has proper sources. She understood the format of Wikipedia very well and provided sources that were very difficult to verify. The content, for example, is only one aspect of her invention. In order to create an air of credibility, Ji Mao described herself as the daughter of a Chinese diplomat stationed in Russia who married a Russian man and listed her academic credentials on her user profile, including a doctoral degree in world history from Moscow State University. Recently, she also added that she was a pacifist and attached a petition that her husband had supposedly signed in protest of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Though Mao occasionally feigned humility and expressed disgust with fakery, the investigation also found that she controlled at least four sock puppet accounts. These are alternative accounts that she used to create an illusion of support. Quote, please don't call me boss. I am just an ordinary student, Jimao wrote in reply to one of those fake accounts. Now, with another sock puppet account, she posed as a doctoral student in world history at Peking University who had studied in Russia and claimed to know Jimao in real life. Though one account, the inquisitive amateur, was active since 2010, the investigation suggested that she only seized control of that account in 2019. Jimao's convincing persona as a modest scholar, scholar, excuse me, won her trust in the community. So the question then is, who on earth is this person? Who is Jimao in real life? She came clean in an apology letter issued on her Wikipedia account last month. She speaks neither English nor Russian and is a housewife with only a high school degree. Now, the hoax started with an innocuous intention. Unable to comprehend scholarly articles in their in their original language, she pieced sentences together with a translation tool and then filled in the blanks with her own imagination. Quote, as the saying goes, in order to defend a lie, you must tell more lies, she wrote. Now, before long, she had accumulated uh, basically uh, all of these words into tens of thousands of characters, which she obviously was reluctant to delete. The alternative accounts were imaginary friends that she cosplayed as when she was bored and alone, given that her husband was away most of the time, and she re- she says she doesn't have any friends. She also apologized to actual experts on Russia, who she had attempted to cozy up to and later impersonated. Quote, the knowledge I have right now is not enough to make a living. In the future, I will learn a craft, work conscientiously, and not do pointless things like this anymore. And that's why you shouldn't use Wikipedia as a source for important information for research. I mean, wow. Just wow. Think about writing almost 300 articles just piecing them together for i mean she's a smart person she has no training whatsoever on russian history but she's clearly a smart person you know and i hate to say it because i know there are a ton of people that write and curate wikipedia in obvious good faith but this isn't the first time that wikipedia's had to deal with this type of thing and and i have to say the past examples that i have are not as sophisticated but this really is what undermines wikipedia so check out some of these other ones when i went looking for this went researching for this to kind of reinforce this back in 2006 for example the mustachioed man on the pringles can you know was known as simply mr pringle or the pringles man 
He didn't have a real name. And so a former Wikipedia editor known as Platypus Man decided to christen the mascot with a fairly simple prank. Platypus Man asked his former roommate to help invent a fake name uh, basically for the Pringles mascot. They landed on Julius Pringles, which was a derivation apparently of Julius Peppers, who was playing football on TV at the time when they were trying to figure this out. The duo then added that single line of trivia to the Pringles Wikipedia page, quote, the man depicted in the Pringles logo is actually named Julius Pringles. Several years later, that lie became a reality. The name Julius Pringles was confirmed by the Pringles mascot in an animated Facebook video. According to Platypus Man, the lie only reached this point because of the status as a uh, Wikipedia mod and obviously with a little luck. So there you go. The Pringles Man, the one on the can, did not have a name until some dude just made it up. On top of that, and this is more damaging, Israel publication Heretz, and this is an entirely, forget the Pringles Man, we're on to the next one. Israel publication Heretz exposed a hoax about a Warsaw, Poland concentration camp that was on Wikipedia for 15 years. The camp never existed. In that Wikipedia article, they had claimed that something like 200,000 Poles and Jews had died in this fake concentration camp. This is obviously a huge problem because it undermines the legitimacy of the actual camps that we know existed, the records that were made, etc., etc. These are the little bits of nuggets that, you know, the the neo-Nazis of the world will take and say, you see, you see, it's all fake. The whole thing's a hoax. These, this is why this is so unbelievably damaging. Now, on top of this, and in another point, an article about an obscure 17th century war in India had to be deleted from Wikipedia after an enterprising editor discovered that despite being on the site live for five years, it never actually occurred. Now, basically, this started in 2007, and this is the Baicholim conflict, um, and that was described as, quote, a period of armed conflict between the Portuguese rulers of Goa and the Maratha Empire that ended apparently in a peace treaty, as well has had a larger effect on later, later regional politics and popular culture. And obviously none of this ever happened and on and on and on. So if you are looking at Wikipedia, if you are reading Wikipedia, understand, take it with a grain of salt, even when they are linking to say, oh, yes, this is coming from some obscure book or link that you can't actually read. There you go. This is why, for example, my editors at Forbes or Smirconish or anybody are not going to take Wikipedia as a primary source, nor will college institutions do that for obvious reasons. So Wikipedia, while it's a great resource and I really do love the concept of of the approach and I know that most of them are truly working on good faith. A little bit of this poisons the rest of the wells. Will. So, well, well. So, that is your Wikipedia news, your long Wikipedia news, your fascinating Wikipedia news of the week. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa, the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show, here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for breaches of the week. And if you have a data breach to report that's local to you or the major news might have missed it, Please, by all means, send it to me, and I'm glad to give you a shout-out and include it in the radio show and possibly a daily video. Uh, And you can find me on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can uh, email questions at securityfanatics.com. Again, that's questions at securityfanatics.com. And I'm more than happy to include your data breach and give you a shout-out on the air. With that, let's begin. And like... Pretty much every other week, This Week in Data Breaches does not disappoint if you're a big fan of having your privacy violated or data breached. So 
With that, let's dive right in because we've got a lot of ground to cover. And as always, I want to thank the people that sent me a lot of these. It always helps me out. And please feel free to send them my way and I'll give you a shout out here as well. That would be Jay Dance, Chris Fallon, Barrett Peterson, and Ali Bin Wadil. Guys, thank you so very much. And with that, let's start with Clarion Housing out of the UK. A cyber incident has caused massive disruption for thousands of former council house tenants in Fenland trying to contact their landlord, Clarion Housing. Now, it's asking residents nationwide, including their 4,000 Fenland tenants, which obviously this is where the article came from, to contact them only if they have an emergency repair, meaning it's a landlord's dream. Don't contact me unless it's absolutely urgent. Hopefully, they'll get back on their feet soon. With that, let's move on basically to the United States and talk about IT services giant SHI International. They're struggling to fully restore systems after a cyber attack over the 4th of July weekend. This is an incident that SHI describes as a, quote, coordinated and professional malware attack, basically forcing the company to shut down many of their systems that were offline as of a week ago or so. So hopefully SHI International is back online. But if you use them for your IT needs or your business does, definitely give them a shout. Moving on, I want to give you an update on Aon, uh, their data breach. This is obviously a huge data breach. Aon is just massive. They recently disclosed that 145,889 of their North American customers had their sensitive information exposed in a large data breach. Now, this is a British multinational financial services firm. They obviously have a huge problem with hackers, as do all financial firms and all of that, but they figured out that they were breached basically between or at various times between December 29th of 2020, so that's a couple years back, through February 26th of this year. Aon disclosed the breach to the SEC, and then basically they updated it three months later on May 26th, and on a letter dated May 27th, they basically said that personally identifiable information that was hit now includes driver's license numbers, social security numbers, and in a small number of cases, benefits enrollment information. So if you use Aon, you definitely want to give them a call, especially if you're sitting here listening to me in North America. Moving on, we're going to talk about sensitive airport data because a misconfigured Amazon S3 bucket, that's the standard storage pod, if you will, in Amazon resulted in three terabytes, more than 1.5 million files of airport data being publicly accessible, open and without authentication requirements for access. The exposed information was uncovered by Sky High Security, who I guess is doing, I don't know, airline security, maybe? Includes employee personal identification numbers and other sensitive company data, affecting at least four major airports in Colombia and Peru, both in South America. The personal identifiable information ranged from photos of airline employees to national ID cards, which obviously could present a serious threat if leveraged by a terrorist group or criminal organization, not to mention information about planes, fuel lines, GPS map coordinates, all that kind of stuff. This has now been secured and it contained information. This bucket contained information dating back to 2018, according to the report. And there you go. Not to mention mobile app development was in there. And so that is just absolutely awful. Imagine an Al-Qaeda being able to fake national ID and airline employee cards and get on airplanes. We all know what happens when they do that. So that's obviously a huge, huge problem. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we won't see anything stem from that in the future. 
Moving on, let's talk about Professional Finance Company. And for the record, you're probably going to be hearing about them for quite some time because on July 1st, Professional Finance Company, or PFC USA, announced that they had started notifying impacted individuals that they might have had their personal and health information compromised during a February 2022 ransomware attack. Because the attackers were able to access and disable some of the company's computers, personal information stored on those computers may have been compromised. And so PFC is notifying potential health uh, healthcare providers on May 5th. This is a supply chain hit, meaning professional finance company, essentially a whole bunch of healthcare systems are outsourcing to PFC various things. And given the information that they had disclosed that might have been accessed, we get a good look into what professional finance company was doing for an absolute ton of healthcare systems. So what might have been breached were names, addresses, birth dates, account receivable balance and payments information, social security numbers, and health insurance and medical treatment information. They have not said how many were impacted, but now by virtue of that, per HIPAA compliance here in the United States, we are going to see an absolute ton of healthcare uh, systems essentially have to declare. The first one being, in the last two weeks, Bay Health medical center for more than 17,000 patients. And so if obviously, if you're sitting here in the United States, uh, you're basically going to be on pins and needles until your hospital or your healthcare system potentially, uh, you know, contacts you with a letter, or you might want to check in and ask if they are using the professional finance company or PFC USA for all of their medical billing or collections needs. So heads up to you on that. Moving on, let's talk about Lending Tree. I've heard their commercials before. I think I've actually seen their website in a commercial. But anyway, on June 29th of this year, they reported a data breach to the Montana Attorney General's office. According to the company's data breach notice, between mid-February and sometime in June of this year, quote, a code vulnerability likely resulted in in the unauthorized disclosure of sensitive personal information. We're talking full names, dates of birth, street addresses, and social security numbers. So if you have applied for a loan or done anything with LendingTree or LendingTree.com, you definitely want to make sure you check in. You could be caught up in this. Moving on. Let's talk about Mangatune. This is interesting. This is an app for manga, which are Japanese comics, which quite frankly are all the rage here, especially in the younger generations in the United States. They suffered a data breach that exposed information belonging to over 23 million user accounts after an attacker stole all of this information from an unsecured database. We are talking names, email addresses, genders, social media account identities, authorization tokens from social logins, and MD5 passwords. MD five basically is a type of way to hash a password which is an incredibly weak way to secure a password so heads up to you if you or your kids are are using the Mangatune app moving on let's talk about colorado springs utilities this is the utilities provider for obviously colorado springs they're warning customers about a data breach that happened in june affecting their information they basically uh notified or they were notified that customer data stored in one of their subcontractors was accessed by an unauthorized party. And according to the utility company, this happened on June 15th. We are talking about their customer names, addresses, account numbers, and in most cases, phone numbers and email addresses. Uh, Springs Utilities also said, though, that no sensitive financial information or social security numbers or credit card information was compromised. So heads up to you if you are a customer of Colorado Springs Utilities. And I do have an affiliate 
out by you. Beautiful city, by the way. Moving on, let's talk about Texas-based Tenant Healthcare and its affiliate, Baptist Healthcare System. This is, again, out of Texas. They are facing a healthcare data breach lawsuit regarding a cybersecurity incident that occurred in April of this year that affected about 1.2 million of their patients. Now, this lawsuit was filed in Dallas County on July 5th, is seeking class action status and more than 1 million in damages. Although, if it's class action, that number, I think, will go way up. And as previously reported, Texas-based tenant healthcare affiliates and Baptist Medical Center and Resolute Health Hospital informed patients that they were in part of this incident on April 20th. So heads up to you. If you use those uh, systems, you may be entitled to compensation. And keeping it in Texas, we're not done because this last couple of weeks has been healthcare crazy. Texas-based Christus Spawn Health System is now notifying patients of a May data breach that affected potentially 15,000 of their patients on May 4th. Uh, they learned that an unauthorized user had accessed the system. And so we are talking about health information such as full names, social security numbers, dates of birth, home addresses, billing and insurance information. The breach, though, did not affect health system operations. So if you showed up at the ER, you would have been fine, but your data may not be. So heads up if you use Christus Spawn Health in Texas. Moving on, let's talk about AFNI Inc. here in the United States. They've got about 9,000 employees or so. And on or before June 7th, an unauthorized party was able to gain access to their computer systems and remove data. We're talking names, addresses, social security numbers, and dates of birth being compromised. We don't know who or how many have been impacted yet, but if you have anything to do with AFNI, definitely check in. Moving on, Let's talk about Health Aid of Ohio. This is actually an update. They've agreed to settle a class action lawsuit uh, to resolve claims that it failed to protect the sensitive personal information of its customers. Now, February 19th uh, of 2021 was when this breach happened and affected 141,149 individuals. So if you use Health Aid of Ohio, there you go. And finally, and we have two finalies for you. The first one we're going to be talking about is Marriott, the massive hotel chain, because they seriously, seriously need to get their stuff together. They have suffered at least it's their seventh data breach. That's number seven since 2010. That is, I mean, they're averaging about a data breach, I think a little less than one one per one and a half years. That's nuts. Now, they confirmed that they were the target of yet another data breach after attackers recently breached their systems again. Now, the company said that the attackers used social engineering techniques to gain access to an employee's computer. After obtaining around 20 gigabytes of data, the person or group behind the attack tried to extort Marriott, but the company refused to pay. The hackers had access to Marriott's network for less than a day, according to the company, and the company told CyberScoop, the publication, that it was already looking into the breach before it received the extortion attempt. The incident is said to have taken place around a month ago. It only just came to light. Marriott has also informed law enforcement as an, and is assisting with the investigation, according to them. It also will notify regulators and between three to 400 individuals, most of whom are former employees, meaning Marriott got breached. This time it wasn't your data or my data as we all stay at a Marriott at some point it was their employees quote their information was in an arc was in archived files that were not detected by the scanning tool we use as part of our proactive security efforts to identify and remove sensitive data from devices that's according to marriott now according to data breaches another publication which first reported on this attack the attackers gained access to a server at the bwi airport marriott in maryland which 
I swear, I think I just stayed at <laughs> in the last month. Uh, so they unfortunately provided the publication with screenshots that appear to show reservation documents for flight crews, along with corporate credit card numbers for an airline or travel agency, and on and on. Marriott said most of the information the attackers accessed was, quote, non-sensitive internal business files regarding the operation of the property. So this, as I mentioned, is at least the seventh data security incident revolving Marriott or involving Marriott, excuse me, since 2010. One of these is the more notable case from 2018, November of 2018. The company said attackers gained access to the reservation database of the Starwood subsidiary and obtained the personal details of as many as 383 million guests, although some were believed to be duplicates. That also included 5.3 million unencrypted passport numbers, and the UK Commissioner's Office fined Marriott about $21.9 million US over that incident that is, again, adjusted for the crazy inflation we're currently seeing. So if you're staying at a Marriott, and Lord knows I go to a ton of speeches uh, where, where I'm talking about breaches, and usually they're putting me up at a Marriott, so here we are. Now, with that we have one more finally for you today, and I think this one is actually interesting, and this takes us back to 2017, and this one was actually incredibly damaging to the United States. We are talking about the massive CIA Vault 7 data breach, again, back in 2017, and we just had a real interesting update here in July of 2022. A computer programmer who helped the CIA or Central Intelligence Agency design some of its most sensitive and secretive hacking tools was convicted uh, Wednesday around the 14th or so, or was that around the 10th or the 14th, whatever that Wednesday was in July, was convicted that Wednesday of handing over troves of internal documents to WikiLeaks in the famous Vault 7 leak, which prosecutors called, and I quote, one of the most brazen and damaging acts of espionage in American history. Now, jurors in a Manhattan federal court convicted 33-year-old Joshua Schulte on all nine counts, including illegal gathering of national defense information and illegal transmission of unlawfully possessed documents. Nicholas Biaze, he's a spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, confirmed this to various publications, including my publication, Forbes. I did not write that article, but it's in Forbes, full disclosure. Now, prosecutors have argued that Schulte leaked the documents to WikiLeaks in 2017 because he held a grudge against the CIA for failing to take his workplace complaints seriously. Now, Schulte, who represented himself at trial, reportedly argued there wasn't enough evidence to prove that he had actually leaked the documents and claimed that the CIA was seeking to frame him for the incident, even though other staffers had access to this information. Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, wrote in a statement, and I quote the attorney, the district attorney, when Schulte began to harbor resentment towards the CIA, he covertly collected those tools and provided them to WikiLeaks, making some of our most critical intelligence tools known to the public and therefore our adversaries. Today, Schulte has been convicted for one of the most brazen and damaging acts of espionage in American history. Now, Schulte was previously put on trial two years ago, but the judge declared a mistrial after jurors couldn't reach a verdict on most of the charges, meaning they couldn't figure out if he was innocent or guilty. Was the CIA actually framing him, or did he actually do this? Apparently, that record got corrected this year. Up until 2016, though, Schulte worked for an elite CIA team whose goal basically was to make programs that could break into the phones and computers of U.S. adversaries. 
blueberries. But according to a June New Yorker article, Schulte grew frustrated with the CIA due to various disputes with his colleagues who reportedly conducted their spy movie-esque work in an environment comparable to a fraternity complete with pranks, nerf gun fights, insulting nicknames, etc., etc. Apparently, he was not a fan of this. Now, by 2017, scores of information on the secretive cyber tools designed by Schulte's team appeared on Julian Assange's controversial website, WikiLeaks, and that's obviously an incredibly embarrassing moment that rendered most of those programs essentially useless, according to prosecutors. On top of this mess, Schulte will now also face a separate child pornography trial after agents said that they discovered evidence during the search of his computer. He has pled not guilty to those charges. Now, I find that to be interesting as well, because if he has taken the line in his defense, and obviously he pled guilty, and uh, interestingly enough, he actually represented himself. I can't remember if I mentioned that in this, but yeah, he actually represented himself. And I don't know if you know the old adage about that, but a man who represents himself has a fool for a lawyer, you know, or has a fool for a client, I should say, um, you know, and here we are. So I think in that case, if they if they are looking at trying to get him on that as well, I think he's also going to claim that was planted. We'll see. There are forensic ways to understand and determine if he was the one that actually downloaded that. Obviously, there are ways to obfuscate those things as well. So we're going to see what happens there. But this is, I think, a rather interesting, um, interesting data breach. And when this came to light, I've got to say it was really interesting to see those tools, start playing with those tools, manipulating those tools. I, you know, the one I remember was that essentially the CIA had figured out a way to break into Cisco infrastructure, like fully updated Cisco infrastructure with just the greatest of ease, which obviously sends Cisco, one of the largest infrastructure uh, appliance makers on the planet, scrambling to figure out how on earth they're going to defend against that tool, obviously rendering it useless. The world, you know, a lot of the world, I should say, uses Cisco infrastructure technology. And so by virtue of that, if the CIA could easily walk into it, they could easily walk into anything from businesses the foreign governments, you know, that were leveraging Cisco. So, so huge, huge problem. Um, but anyway, that's an interesting update. Those were your breaches of the week. Tons of healthcare, unfortunately, this round. But uh, hopefully, we will uh, attempt to continue to maintain our privacy as best we can. So those were your breaches of the week. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for the Deep Dive segment where we take a closer and deeper look at a cybersecurity, cyber warfare or technology issue around us. And if you have any suggestions for a Deep Dive segment or something you'd like me to dive into, you can once again Find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. That's questions at securityfanatics.com. I am more than happy to take a look at it. And uh, if it meets our standards, we are more than happy to do a deep dive on it. So let's begin. And this week's deep dive may actually be one of the shortest ones that I have done in quite some time. But I think it's kind of important. Now, this is coming from an article that I recently had published on July 14th at Smirconish.com. Uh, if you may know uh, Michael Smirconish and from his SiriusXM radio show, 
or also he has a show on Saturdays uh, on CNN. And I wrote an article for his site. I publish there regularly. I think it's just a great clearinghouse for just interesting commentary and opinions and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote an article called The Five Laws of Disinformation. And uh, sneak peek, if you're a longtime listener, you know I did a TED Talk called The Five Laws of Cybersecurity. Well, I'm hoping to turn The Five Laws of Disinformation into TED Talk number five. If you didn't know, uh, The Five Laws was actually my second talk of currently four. So with that, you're basically getting a sneak preview of essentially the uh, rough draft of what eventually will be that TED Talk, which is why it's going to be a little shorter than my normal deep dives. But I think this is so important. We have such a huge problem with disinformation and misinformation. I really just wanted to codify this uh, essentially for the world so that everybody could get an understanding of exactly what we are talking about. So with that, Let's get going. And the world has just witnessed what a motivated country is willing to do to ensure that their goals are met. However, while the current situation in Ukraine has been heartbreaking for most of the world, it's important to understand that the first shots fired in this invasion were not actually on February 22nd of this year. The attack started years before with a vast disinformation campaign that subtly drove a wedge into Ukrainian society, which in turn helped to destabilize the legitimate government in Kyiv. Now, this this deep dive is not about Russia or Ukraine, but rather about exemplifying the framework that disinformation falls into so that we may understand how incredibly harmful it can become to its target by virtue of what it inherently is. And so without further ado, here are the five laws of disinformation. Law number one disinformation easily turns into misinformation. Now, while disinformation and misinformation tend to go hand in hand, there is one core difference between them, and that is intent. Disinformation is blatantly false information created with the willing intent to deceive its intended targets. Misinformation is information that is spread by unsuspecting individuals who believe that the content they're absorbing is accurate. This misinformation is typically alarming to the observer in some way, and therefore they feel an ethical obligation to help by sharing it as much as possible, intending to inform others. This is how disinformation morphs into misinformation. Those with malicious intent are banking on the poorly informed to spread their crafted lies with earnest intent. Combine the motivation of an unsuspecting population with free and open social media platforms that connect the world, and a serious problem arises when primary drivers of disinformation, usually nation states, are essentially given access to a supercharger to spread their fake news. And with that, we'll move on to law number two, which is disinformation twists truth to prey on confirmation bias. Now, the most successful disinformation campaigns throughout the digital age are those that modify truth or partial truth to suit the purposes of the perpetrators. Furthermore, their lies are crafted to seem believable to a targeted population who already agrees with the original truth that is being unknowingly corrupted. 
for the disinformation to spread quickly online as misinformation, this perversion requires the confirmation bias of the targeted population. One of the most successful examples of this problem is Russia's Internet Research Agency, which during the 2016 U.S. presidential election crafted thousands of paid advertisements on Facebook that were designed to drive a wedge into American society. On the same day, simultaneous ads both supporting and deriding U.S. law enforcement, for example, were released to specific political populations with the intent of driving the two sides of the debate further away from each other. Using the truth that the United States has a history of police brutality towards minorities, the disinformation ads intensify the rhetoric for the political right by saying that the police are being unfairly targeted for something that isn't a problem, and so it's important to support Blue Lives Matter. Conversely, an ad targeting the political left was released that posed the question, how many more black men have to be killed with ruthless impunity. Note that there is truth there, yet blown out of proportion to rile up essentially everybody involved. Confirmation bias is what made both of these disinformation campaigns go viral on both sides of the political aisle. And with that, we'll move on to law number three. Disinformation is antithetical to the society it targets, which benefits an adversary. The goal of disinformation is to degrade and destabilize society, thus benefiting one of society's adversaries. China has launched disinformation campaigns against the populations of Hong Kong and Taiwan with the intent of destabilizing each region. If China can sow doubt and discord into both populations, then the net benefit is an easier time gaining control over each region. In Hong Kong, disinformation campaigns help the Communist Party of China easily take over the city and establish rule under their hand-picked local leaders. The disinformation campaign blitz included demonstrably false information about the democratically elected leaders that they sought to replace. If disinformation has to benefit its perpetrators, then it would be pointless to utilize it. There you go. Law number four. Successful disinformation cannot be obvious. Hiding in plain sight is the name of the game in disinformation. While disinformation often utilizes hyperbole, the most successful campaigns will tone down the hyperbole in an attempt to make their claims seem rational, therefore believable, and plausible. A textbook example of this using the real problem of child trafficking as a gateway into conspiracy theories that feel just right to the reader. No one can deny that child trafficking is a serious issue. So, when it is exacerbated by demonstrably false information, such as the claim that children are being sold through the retail website Wayfair, it could seem logical to the targeted audience. Therefore, successful disinformation cannot be obvious. And finally, the last law that we have is number five. Disinformation can and must be combated whenever possible. Left unchecked, disinformation damages a society deeply. The United States seemed to have such a vast political divide, when in actuality, studies show that most of the population is more in the ideological middle and simply tired of all the quote-unquote screaming by a rather vocal minority on both sides of the political aisle. Those minorities 
are the ones being pumped full of disinformation that's urging them to act out both online and sadly in person as well. However, not all is lost as disinformation can be combated by proper education. Training a population on critical thinking and how to spot fake news goes a long way in lowering the amount of disinformation and online rhetoric related to it. Finland identified a large disinformation campaign created by Russia during their 2015 election. So, the Finnish embarked on a nationwide education campaign that successfully thwarted Russia's attempts. Ultimately, the goal of any society should be to live harmoniously with each other. Conflict will always be present, but so can rational discourse to amicably debate and resolve the issue. If a population begins to lose its democratic roots, then the world is lost thanks to the machinations of the autocrats. Here's hoping we'll all learn just how much damage we have experienced and take actions to stem the tide. And that is your deep dive of the week. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was another fun show, and I think we covered a lot of really good stuff, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a really good time, and I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening to the Deep Dive Radio Show here with Nick Espinoza. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, absolutely anything, once again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. And you can always send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. Don't be shy. I love the feedback. We've been having a great time with the show. And as always, stay safe and stay online, everyone. Thanks for listening.